Full Scope, Human Longevity and Performance Podcast. We want you to become the most exceptional, high-performing version of yourself. And to facilitate this, we are giving away the Longevity Fundamentals Handbook absolutely free. This is a tremendous resource that will tell you the lifestyle behaviors and mindset that will lead to the best outcomes and longevity. To get this, go to our website, wondermedicine.com or fullscope.org, put in your email, and we will send you this amazing resource, the Longevity Fundamentals Handbook. On September 16th, of 2021, the entire state of Idaho entered crisis standards of care. This is due to an overwhelming number of COVID-19 infected patients from the Delta variant. Oftentimes, these patients are getting very ill uh, because of the low immunization and vaccination rate in the state of Idaho. On top of this, we're experiencing critical shortages of staff, making it harder to care for people. And then finally, the health of our general population has never been worse. And the increased sedentary lifestyle, the increased amount of bad food we're eating, the amount of alcoholism at home, mental health, it's all starting to catch up to us. And we're starting to fill up hospitals with these other sick patients as well. But at this time, my hospital is usually somewhere between 70 and 90% COVID-19 patients. Right now, I am engulfed in a 14-day hospital shift in one of my rural hospitals, and I have been swallowed up into crisis standards of care. And for that reason, I really wanted to take some time and do a podcast on what that means, some of the problems that we're facing, why so many frontline healthcare workers are feeling so burned out. And quite frankly, I, I do throw some stones in this episode. I, I'm pretty angry because frontline healthcare workers have really lost control of our industry. I do feel like hospitals are factories, patients are products, and healthcare workers are now commodities. And so I'm going to say some bad things about administrators, maybe about some business people, about medical insurance people, but please, 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 please realize that I know that these people aren't all bad. Some of these people are doing amazing things. And even though I talk about the group really negatively in general, some people are doing good stuff. And this is, it's probably not fair for me to do so, but I do need people to know my experience as so many others have shared similar experiences with me and people are scared to speak up. Don't worry. In a couple weeks, we'll get back to genetic diversity and the extinction of the human microbiome. Unlike most episodes that bring you high-value medical knowledge and scientific information, this podcast is going to be largely based on my personal experience and my stated opinions. And so these are not facts. These are my thoughts. Uh, these are my ideas. And so please, if you're looking for more core knowledge or, or interesting science, skip this episode and move on to something else. But if you want to hear about my experience and my opinions, please keep listening. As stated earlier, on this episode of Full Scope, we're going to talk about crisis standards of care. Boo! So I thought this might be a good time to remind everybody who I am and why I feel like I'm qualified to give some opinions on some of these topics. 
I am a medical doctor. I graduated from the University of Colorado School of Medicine. I then went on to do a three-year residency in rural family medicine in Idaho. After residency, I started working as a hospitalist. That's someone who takes care of sick people in the hospital. I currently am privileged at four different rural hospitals across the West and Midwest, as well as one city hospital. On top of general uh, medical surgical patients, I also take care of critical, critically ill patients. And three of the five hospitals I work at have ICUs ranging between 6 and 32 beds. On top of this, I do do some other procedures like endoscopy and a lot of point-of-care ultrasound. On top of my hospital practice, I also have an outpatient direct pay medical clinic called Wander Medicine. We offer direct primary care and a number of other outpatient therapies. As such, I have a really interesting experience over uh, my my uh, not very long career. I only graduated from residency in 2019, but since then I've basically worked on almost every day during the pandemic and at multiple levels of care, including in the ICU, in the hospital. I didn't mention it, but I also cover at least one nursing home at times. And then I do outpatient medicine as well. And that outpatient medicine has included a pretty robust COVID testing. On top of all these things, in a pinch, I do sometimes do obstetrics or deliver babies. But only in a pinch. On top of this medical experience... I also am a business person. Like I said, I own a small business. I'm also working on a development project in Boise, Idaho, trying to build a marketplace plaza called Old Doug's. And then I work at these hospitals as a contractor at both large institutions and small institutions. So on both a medical and a business and I guess a, a medical direction and operation standpoint, I have a lot of interesting experience. Alright, so first of all, what are crisis standards of care and why do they get enacted? Well, a state, a hospital system, a town, really any entity can activate crisis standards of care when needed. And these entities will do so when the number of patients is too large for the available resources to adequately take care of. And so essentially what crisis standards of care are is a shift from focusing on treating every individual um, to, to the extent necessary for that individual to treating a population of people in such a way that maximizes survival and minimizes morbidity. But, like I said, the resources are stretched. And so what ends up happening is you have to ration care. You have to look at people and say, I don't think you can survive, and therefore, you may not get any care at all. Whereas the person next to them, you may say, I think they've got a a higher likelihood, and therefore are worth putting in the resources to try and fix. Essentially, people go from being patients and individuals to colors. You could be a black, which means that you probably cannot be saved, and as such, no attempt will be made. You could be a red, which means we've got to do stuff to get you better right now. 
You could be a yellow, which is a little bit of a step down, or you could be a green, which is someone who is sick or wounded, but what we call the walking wounded, so not not so sick, and maybe not where to put most of the resources, because they'll probably get better on their own anyway. Now, before we get to this dire level of triage and, and rationing care, we hit what's called contingency care. And in contingency care, we basically just cut off all the fat. And what I mean by this is we stop doing paperwork that doesn't benefit the patient. We stop doing all the the jargon work that we normally have to do in order to bill. We stop doing any other busy work that doesn't directly contribute to uh, benefiting the patients. And for that reason, contingency care is actually, in my opinion, a lot of fun. And right now, like I said, I'm in the hospital. I'm working under crisis standards of care. And, and we've been really busy. We've been a lot busier than, number, than normal. And in particular, because of our, our bad staffing ratios, our nurses, oh my gosh, our respiratory therapists have been working their butts off. I mean, the RT is like working the job of like three people. So hats go off to the RTs around the country right now. You guys are some of the most, uh, perhaps the most important people in the game. So thank you. But right now we're not we're not really telling people you can't get care. Now granted, we are being somewhat more aggressive about if somebody is, say, demented and they want to go home or we think they'd be better off going home on hospice. We are more aggressive about, hey, let's free up this bed. Let's get this person home. They don't know what's happening. In reality, we should be like that with patients that are that have severe dementia all the time. If someone is oriented to self only and not to location or time or what's going on, that's just not ethical to care for them. But yet we do it all the time and we bill them all the time via Medicare. I mean, imagine being in a place that you don't understand. You don't know what's happening. Someone's putting masks on you and blowing air into your face and poking you with needles. And all you want to do is go home. And they tell you that, you know, you have to have this done. I mean, that's just not fair to these people. Healthcare is really painful and strenuous and difficult. And if you don't know what's going on and you don't want to get better, it must be a nightmare experience for some of these patients with dementia to go through. They don't know what's happening. Usually it's just their family who wants them to get the care. And it it is kind of a, it's a crime against humanity. And so... Contingency care has been nice in that way because we've been more aggressive about getting people on to hospice. We've been smart about doing things that help the patients and trying to get rid of all the red tape and junk that doesn't contribute at all to patient care, but it's become rampant in healthcare. Absolutely rampant in healthcare. And and, and that's sort of what's been going on in my world right now. I've been working hard. But I haven't been putting black tags on people yet. I think some other hospitals, and I think in northern Idaho, things have been a little bit more dire. And maybe more of that has been going on. But right now I'm in more of what's called contingency care. Now, all of that being said, we have been pretty pressed as far as our machines go. And I'm talking about our high-flow oxygen machines. So these are machines that we put on people. They're usually called heated high flow. Sometimes you hear vapotherm. And they they deliver oxygen 
up to 40 or more liters per minute. So they really blow in a lot of oxygen into people's noses. And then also BiPAP machines, which are essentially these masks that go over the face, and they actually constantly push air in and kind of assist people breathing. And that's kind of similar but much less invasive to a ventilator machine, which everyone has heard a lot about, where we actually have an endotracheal tube that goes into their trachea and... uh, breathe for them. The ma- In a BiPAP machine, the mask sits on the outside. And we've actually gotten to the point once this week where we essentially didn't have any more machines. Thank goodness uh, we ended up getting a few people off of that machine, um, one or two people home on hospice, and didn't end up having to tell anybody that we weren't going to care for them or their family. But we definitely came kind of close, which is uh, not where you want to be in healthcare. Since southern Idaho has entered into crisis mode, around 70 to 90% of my patients in the hospital have been uh, here for hypoxia due to COVID-19, what we call SARS, or Sudden Acute Respiratory Syndrome. While contingency care or crisis standards of care has been somewhat fun and exciting, it's also been absolutely exhausting. You can probably hear my voice is much more hoarse than normal. On top of this, our staff is just tremendously burned out, which is weird for September. Usually after September, we're done. We go through the summer. Very few people are sick. It's still warm outside. We basically kind of coasted, and now we're getting ready for, for colder temperatures and more flu and RSV and other medical problems. The hospitals are just much busier in the colder weather times. And so it's weird being exhausted at the point in time when we're usually just about to start having to take care of more people. And so I am tremendously worried about the workforce in the hospital in general, or at least the workforce that is left because we're certainly not as robust of a crew as we were two years ago prior to the pandemic starting. And I want to spend the rest of the podcast getting more controversial, getting more critical, talking about a lot of my thoughts that, quite frankly, could get me in a lot of trouble. They could get me to lose my job. In fact, the reason you hear so few nurses, doctors, and others talking about some of these issues is because they're scared. They are scared to lose their jobs. People on the front lines don't talk about the problems in healthcare because we're scared to lose our jobs. Let that sink in for a second. This is risky for me to talk about that stuff. And it's sad because what I'm talking about is the health of the people in my profession on the front line. Respiratory therapists or RTs, nurses, doctors, physical therapists, occupational therapists, pharmacists, nursing assistants, ward secretaries, custodial staff, social work, case management. Everyone else that's on the front line that I didn't mention, we are exhausted And I will say that being an advocate for these frontline healthcare workers has now become something that can cause you to lose your job. In fact, even being a patient advocate, being a patient advocate in 2021, if it goes against the administration that you work under, 
can cause you to lose your job. And certainly being vocal about it and doing a podcast on it can cause you to lose your job. But these things have to be said. I cannot stay quiet anymore. In fact, I never stayed that quiet, but I had to do my best during residency because they really can ruin your life during that time. But the moral injury, the abuse, and just just the general treatment of frontline healthcare workers has been appalling to me. On top of this, the lack of concern for patient safety and patients in general is also absolutely appalling to me. You have probably heard me talk about hospitals as factories, nurses and doctors as commodities, and patients as products. And that has truly been what has happened. And if you want to know why we are all so burned out and tired, those are the biggest reasons. And I'm going to discuss those in more detail, of course. But on top of this, we are all being attacked like crazy from the outside. These are some of the things that I'm hearing from my patients who come in unvaccinated and sick with COVID-19 looking for my help. And Yes, I help everyone I can. I don't care if you're vaccinated, unvaccinated, what what color you are, what sex you are. I want to help you regardless. But this is what I'm hearing. That the vaccine is the mark of the beast. And I'm like, shit, I've been marked by the beast? Like, I, I didn't see 666 on the vaccine. We're hearing that... Patients shouldn't come into the hospital because we're, we're killing them. We're killing patients. And kind of what's happening is a lot of people are dying in the hospitals right now because they're so sick from COVID-19. And in spite of our best efforts, they're passing. And we're being, we're being told that we're killing these patients. I'm having lawyers, business people, engineers... All kinds of people in other professions, probably a lot of people just sitting in their basements, giving str- strong medical advice on what people should do, on how I'm so stupid, how I don't know anything, I'm closed-minded, and I'm just a puppet of the government, a puppet of the FDA, the CDC, and it's just crazy. Like, would I ever walk onto an, uh, a construction site and look at an electrical panel and start barking orders about how it was all screwed up and how I, you know, it needed to be repaired in some way. No, because I've never worked as an electrical engineer. So why are random people that have never worked in clinical medicine not only voicing their opinions, which of course is okay to voice your opinions, but just hurling insults and making strong recommendations on patients' clinical care? It is truly concerning for society destabilization when people start totally having no respect for people who spend every day of their life doing a job and that are on the front lines experiencing experiencing things as as they truly are so long story short healthcare workers are being attacked from inside their own walls or sorry they're being attacked from outside their walls, and also being unsupported from within. And this is making the job horrible. I'm hearing nurses talk about, man, I can make $30 here, 
But shoot, I could make $20 working at Target right now and not have to deal with any of this stress. Go home on time every night. Not have to deal with people attacking me. And it's just getting crazy. Like, it's getting really crazy. Not that there's not a ton of people who have been amazingly supportive. And and we don't really need support or... I mean, we do, but we don't really need people to call us heroes or blah, blah, blah. Like, this is our job. We just don't want to be attacked. That's really what we want. I don't care to be a hero to anybody. It's just my job. I take care of people. You don't need to thank me. Just don't <laughs> assault me. All right, so basically what has happened in the United States healthcare system is frontline healthcare workers have lost complete control of the industry. We are controlled by two different things, essentially. Number one is the payer, medical insurance. Now, medical insurance is not run by healthcare people. It's run by business people. And they are some rich, powerful business people. And when you are the one who pays for stuff, you are the one who dictates what can and can't be done to a person. So when you buy medical insurance, you're basically saying, I am going to let this big company, United Healthcare or Cigna or whatever else, decide what things they will and will not pay for. And as anyone knows who has healthcare, they basically hit you up anytime you hit healthcare anyway. So you're going to pay 500 to 1500 a month per individual. But on top of that, anytime you actually use healthcare, you're going to get a big old bill on top of that. In fact, a bigger bill than, than people pay directly through my clinic without insurance. And so what has happened? We have a situation where innovation is stifled because new, good, important things are not paid for in a reasonable amount of time. Insurance companies don't want to pay for stuff. Like That's, that's the point. They don't want to pay because that undercuts their bottom line. And so, for instance, telemedicine. How many years have we had the capability to do telemedicine? How beneficial would telemedicine have been to particularly rural communities who don't have access to doctors and sometimes have to drive hours to get to the people they need to see? Well, it took a pandemic for insurance to finally say, we're going to pay for televisits. That is crazy. That took 15 years in a pandemic. What the heck? On top of that, there were so many other tests, therapeutics, other treatments that work really well that insurance just doesn't pay for, and therefore people can't get them. This is the problem with having business people control the money, is that they decide what can be done, and if those people aren't doctors, if those people aren't other healthcare workers, they don't really know. And for that reason, we get, we get slow or no innovation in healthcare. Remember in early 2020 when all this pandemic stuff started and we kind of jumped the gun and shut down our whole society and kind of closed down all of our outpatient clinics and basically shut down all but the inpatient areas of the hospital and sent a bunch of doctors, nurses, and other other healthcare personnel home kind of waiting for a huge spike in COVID patients that in most areas never came? Well, during that time, doctors, nurses, other healthcare personnel were laid off. They were sent home. Sent home without pay. Furloughed. Meanwhile, insurance companies start making money hand over foot. They're no longer paying for surgeries. They're no longer getting any bills submitted to them. And they're paying their CEOs bonuses. I think that United Healthcare, I saw 
a bonus of like $50 million for their CEO. Frontline healthcare workers took on all the risk in that situation. And, and normally you think of insurance as a risk, as a, as, a, as a taker of risk to protect us. But yet in this, in this pandemic, frontline healthcare workers took on the risk and were sent home. And insurance companies made money hand over foot. It was appalling, and it just blank. It just blatantly showed how much control we've lost, and how the pool of risk has all fallen on us. Now, meanwhile, 2021 crisis mode surge. I'm getting hit up all over the country to work in every hospital around because everyone needs help right now. Nurses are the same way. Hospitals are paying travel nurses ninety dollars an hour to come work for whatever amount of time. And they're telling their normal nurses that work, keep working for 30, we're not going to pay you any extra. What a world. So yeah, the risk has all been put on frontline healthcare workers, and medical insurance has stifled innovation in the healthcare industry. I mean, look at, look at all these other industries with, with so much better tech and so much better resources, and we're dealing with like... I don't know, 1990s technology in most of the hospitals I work at? It's just crazy and not good. And on top of that, it's making it more expensive. Like, when you have to pay these middlemen in insurance, you are costing people a lot more money. I'm not saying, again, and I've said this before, but I'm not saying that medical insurance is not important. People should have insurance for catastrophic, unforeseen events. That's what insurance is for. But when you start using insurance for every part of healthcare, and you have a situation where the insurance company gets billed a certain amount in a given year, and they just charge more the next year such that they never lose, we've got a bad, bad deal. And so we, I'm not saying we need to get rid of healthcare insurance. What I'm saying is we need to get back to making it truly insurance. It should be a true insurance product and not so much of a... Uh, some some weird managed care plan or something like that. The other bigger problem that I want to get in today is healthcare administration. I mean, again, these are essentially business people, managers. They're not on the front lines. And I'll tell you my experience with hospital administration. I've been working as an attending level provider or doctor for two years now. Guess how many times anyone from the back business office that that control things and make the decisions have asked me how my job is going, have asked me what I need to do my job better, have asked me what the other frontline staff need to be better, and what the hospital needs to be better. Zero. In two years, at five different hospitals, I've been asked those questions zero times. I don't understand who trained these business people. But the first step in management is soliciting all your stakeholders, going to the front lines where the operations are actually happening, seeing things yourself, and then talking to the people who actually do the job and learning what they do and what you need to do in order to make their lives better. That doesn't happen in healthcare. As many of us say, it has gotten way too top-heavy. We have all these mandates and all these protocols coming from above with no insight from the front line. What does that do? Well, it does a couple different things. One, it shows that we have no autonomy as frontline healthcare workers. 
And anyone who has studied burnout knows that autonomy is critically important for the health and wellness of high-functioning professionals. Number two, it leads to bad patient care. If people that have nothing to do with patient care are making decisions based on what they think in an office somewhere, it is going to correlate to bad standards of care. And I can give a few examples of this. For instance, at one of the hospitals I work at, the physical therapists are in some outpatient building. And it's a rehab hospital. And for that reason, all their equipment's over there. It's extremely hard for them to get the elderly rehab patients over to where they need to be in order to take good care of them. Now, the administration office is right down the hall from the hospital ward. Like, what is going on? Put yourself in that separate building and be your little business department and let the frontline therapist have a room to do physical therapy in a rehab hospital that charges thousands of dollars a day for people to get rehab. Craziness, right? Here's another thing. What's up, Full Scope listeners? If you are enjoying this content, if this content is bringing you value, please share it with your friends, loved ones, and everyone else. Post it online, on social media. Let your friends know. Have them subscribe. Put the word out there. That's all we really ask. And at the very least, give us a review and rate the podcast. Thanks so much. Let's get back to the show. The hospital administration at one of the critical access hospitals I'm working at dictates that I can't use certain therapies. For instance, low-dose ketamine for pain and and mental health issues. They say that's an ICU drug. And they just say you you can't use it. If you want to use that... You've got to ship someone to the uh, to the ICU, and, and this is a hospital system, and it's a smaller hospital within a hospital system. But that's just crazy for a critical access hospital to dictate certain therapies that a, that a, a rurally, broadly trained doctor can and cannot use. That's bad. That's not looking out for the community. And then what was crazy during crisis time is they came up with this elaborate plan that that one of the hospitals was go- or one of the rural hospitals was going to try and ship all the critically ill patients to the tr- to the larger city hospital and the larger city hospital was basically going to dump i don't know all their patients that they don't want back here that aren't quote critically ill and what happened was they gave us several high flow oxygen machines they gave us several bipap machines to use and they said use these and i'd get patients with sars critically ill patients with like requiring 40 liters of oxygen at 100 percent on BiPAP at 100 percent oxygen I mean these are patients that were critically ill prior to this pandemic and these administrators were telling me one no these patients aren't critically ill which is crazy why would a business person try and tell a doctor when a patient is or isn't critically ill that's not their designate that's not their their job and then they're not qualified to do that but then on top of that they were saying okay if you do want to call them critically ill you need to ship them to the bigger hospital but here's the problem shipping patients takes a lot of time 
when I have nurses that are taking care of two critically ill patients and three other floor patients and they have no nursing assistance, no secretary at the front desk, do you think they can take the three hours it takes to ship a patient? No. On top of that, we couldn't get ambulances. We were calling around looking for ambulances just to try and get patients home from the hospital who were horizontal and couldn't sit in a wheelchair anymore. We couldn't get anybody. And so those bright ideas from from the back office just were not executionable in real time on the patient floor. So it's a bad plan. If we can't execute it, it's a bad plan. And of course it's going to be a bad plan because we were never asked about it. We were never solicited about it. And I'll tell you, there's one reason why they want to ship these critically ill patients to the bigger hospital. It's because we don't technically have an ICU at the hospital I'm at. And they don't, they, they can't bill for full ICU care, I guess, or I, I don't know. I feel like during crisis mode they could, but they kind of are pretending like it's not full-on crisis mode, which is making it even more challenging. But for some reason they wanted this elaborate plan of shipping patients back and forth when even the the Idaho Crisis Care Standards Manual talks about how you get to a certain point and shipping patients becomes impossible. And so you do more with less. So the whole philosophy just made very little sense to me and was just very annoying to have administration get in my business, try and tell me who is critically ill and who's not, as well as who needs to be transported and when. By the way, I told you I need some medicines to take care of these critically ill patients, like dexmedetomidine, but yet you're not letting me use them. Like, why don't you help get me the stuff I need that I'm asking for, and don't bother me about the stuff that I know how to do well. Support me. Don't try to force me to do everything you want with zero input from me. And I'm a physician. You can imagine if I'm getting this, the nurses and everyone else is just getting full-on mandates with no input. And it's just that. And guess what? We're tired. We're burned out. We're sad. We don't like to be treated this way. And for that reason, hospitals around the country are hemorrhaging staff. Another recent brilliant hospital decision made was deciding to remodel four of the nursing home room beds during crisis mode. One of the, the biggest hurdles we have in freeing up beds is getting older people that are not doing so well placement into assisted living and long-term care and nursing homes. And so why would we want to take four beds out of commission during crisis mode? On top of that, why would we want to bring in construction workers and other people possibly with COVID-19 into a nursing home during crisis mode when Delta variant is just ripping through the community? It's just thoughtless stuff. And of course, no one in case management, none of the physicians or medical directors were solicited at all for this. This is not a two-way streak of communication. It is top down, do this, don't talk against us. If you do, we're going to try to reprimand you. And if you talk too much, we will threaten to fire you. 
this is the world of healthcare that we have created and I want to tell everyone that it fucking sucks. When I went to Africa a couple years ago with my wife and fantastic registered nurse, Carly, we set up a quick clinic to basically just do acute care and give some wellness consults. We saw about 50 patients a day. In the United States, most clinics are, are really struggling to see 20 patients a day. And it's because there's so much jargon. There's so much red tape. It takes so much time to do all this junk. And all this junk so often adds zero value to patients, to the community, to the environment. Now, I'm not saying we should be seeing 50 patients a day. In fact, I think we should see 10 patients a day and we should spend 40 minutes to an hour with them, really get to know them, take great care of them. But what I, what I mean is that in crisis mode, when there's a lot of people to be seen in limited time, you can do a lot more stuff than we do when we have to work under standard conditions. And so when we entered contingency mode here in Idaho, what do you think we did? We got rid of all the crummy mandates from administration, or they tried to keep giving them to us, but we basically said, ah, hell no, we can't do that, that's stupid, and just told them to, you know, go come up with some other ideas, or better yet, put on some gloves and help us. Of course, none of them, none of them did that. None of them were willing to actually help on the front lines. But we basically got rid of that, that kind of junk stuff from administration, and we also got rid of all the jargon billing junk from insurance. We did crisis uh, crisis charting, and it's it's kind of funny that like when the rubber actually meets the road, guess what we get rid of? All the stuff from the business people that control the industry, because that stuff doesn't matter. So, there we are in healthcare. A bunch of business people control it, a bunch of burned out frontline healthcare workers, hemorrhaging a bunch of staff everywhere, people feeling so burned out that they want to leave the industry entirely and a complete lack of ability to innovate in the space because of all the constraints and ridiculousness. Crisis Mode 2021. I think this is somewhat eye-opening, and I hope that this leads to some real change. What has been surprising to me is the lack of communication in Crisis Mode. Many people do understand and know that communication is so important in business and life. It's important to health. And it's important to have optimal outcomes. And in healthcare, it's been well studied and well documented that communication errors are the largest source of error. They lead to the largest amount of patient morbidity and mortality, and they're the reason why we are the third leading cause of death in the country, uh, and, and we being healthcare. Uh, and, and you know, it's not totally a fair statistic because we get a lot of people that are really sick and kind of on the edge of dying anyway, but we make mistakes. We're humans. We don't do things perfectly. And most of those mistakes can be traced back to communication errors. During a time of crisis, it is so important that communication lines be increased. You want more people talking to each other. You want clear lines of communication. You want really clear expectations. I will tell you that nobody <laughs> from from these hospital systems have, has given me any any recommendation or guidance regarding what what the standard is. I did receive one or two emails from a hospital administrator saying we are not rationing care, blah blah blah, blah blah blah. What does that say? All it does is undercut your front line by sending a threatening email to the medical staff saying that we are not quote rationing care. 
basically takes away their ability to adequately prioritize resources and, and ration care when needed in order to take the best care of the patients with the limited resources they have. Why would you send an email like that during crisis care? And I know that these hospital systems are worried about looking bad, looking like they're rationing care or whatever, but what you really should be looking at in a time when you're losing staff left and right and your people are tired and exhausted is what can I do to support these people that have been with me sometimes for years? Where is that mentality? We want you to keep taking care of everyone in spite of insufficient resources. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> this is why people are walking off the job. So that's the communication I'm getting. Not how we go about rationing care. What are the ethical standards that we should be following? Etc. So what I did is I got online. I got on, uh, I, you know, I started Googling. I said crisis standards of care Idaho and I found some bills and documents created by the Idaho government and other departments within Idaho. And it was about 50 pages long, so not exactly a cheat sheet, but I read through it. And I, what I found was that it was really contradictory. It was as if the people who wrote it weren't weren't kind of looking with, like between the sections to make sure that things were all in line with each other. And I thought the funniest part, and, and by funny I mean sad and horrific, was the communication section. This to me should have been the most robust section, the most fleshed out. How do we talk about things? How do we disseminate information? What are the standards? Instead, it was like a paragraph that talked about how we need to make accommodations for people with hearing and vision impairment, as well as those who speak foreign languages or use sign language. Like, yeah, that stuff is important, but that's not the kind of communication section I'm talking about in a crisis standards of care document. That's, it's really poor form, guys. Not great. In line with a lot of the rest of the pandemic, just like, what the hell is happening? And guys, like I said, these types of comments can cost me my job. They put my life, my family at risk. But they have to be said, and more people need to start saying it. I was told to be quiet about this stuff in the hospital, to stop talking about it. Are you kidding me? So on top of all these bad things that were done, administrators were telling me to be, were telling me to be quiet. How can you ask me to be quiet when my frontline team is suffering, at risk of failing, understaffed, overworked, underpaid, and not appreciated? When we work in a hospital that is not properly staffed, it makes it more likely that people get hurt, injured, bad things happen. When bad things happen, it is our medical licenses that could put at risk, risk. Administration does not go to court for adverse medical problems. Doctors, nurses, and other frontline healthcare personnel do. And so, to be told to be quiet when your license is being threatened is just appalling. Now, another thing I didn't mention about crisis mode is there is supposed to be increased protection from a legal standpoint. But, I'll be honest, I have never actually seen a detailed description of what that actually means. So I hope if anything happens and people get sued for having to do 
the, the hard but necessary things that they do receive some protection. How can you ask me to be quiet when patient care is at risk? Do you care about patients or do you just care about money? Well, I think what we're seeing is hospitals are factories, patients are, are products, nurses, doctors, and other frontline workers are commodities. We have to break this cycle if we want an equitable healthcare system. What we are doing right now is not working, and I am tired of being told to be quiet. I cannot be quiet anymore and watch the world become a piece of shit. On a more positive note, and I want to end on a positive note, because at the end of the day, I'm a positive person. I think we're headed for a bright future, but I think the only way to get there is to quit ignoring problems and to personally try to solve them both as yourself and by working in teams. Here's what I want to say. The nurses, respiratory therapists, other frontline healthcare workers that I've had the privilege to working with during crisis mode have been extraordinary. They have risen to every challenge. They have kept exceptionally good care or they've taken exceptionally good care of patients and they have done so under very difficult working conditions. I am so proud and so honored to be parts of these teams and I thank everybody for all their hard work. I think in spite of everything that I said during this podcast, all of us need to fill our hearts with love. All of us need to come together. And I'm not just saying frontline people. I'm saying managers too. Managers, this is quality feedback from somebody who really cares about patients and healthcare. Somebody who's got a reasonable brain and somebody who does the job every day. You should take this feedback and appreciate it. You should use it to make yourself better. I know there's some awesome administrators out there that have done amazing things for their healthcare systems. And I ask you to please listen to what I'm saying. It is not to make you look stupid or undermine you. It is because I have been dealing with this for years now and it needs to be said because I am not being heard and this is affecting patient care. Thank you so much for listening to the Full Scope Podcast and investing in your health. I'm Dr. Bill Randenberg. If you're enjoying the content, please rate, review, and share this content with all of your friends online and all your social media platforms. Please understand that this podcast is not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure your specific medical condition. This podcast does not create any type of doctor-patient relationship between myself, Dr. Brandenburg, and you, the listener. If you do need help with your life, with your health, with anything regarding your longevity or performance, please check out wondermedicine.com. Our longevity and performance program is the best in the world and is ready to help you right now, today, become the best possible possible individual you can be. Thanks. Bye-bye.